0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne.
1: Truly independent community radio.
0: Can you dig it? Can you dig it? more dramatic or sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm
2: Welcome one and all to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 R's weekly interrogation and investigation of all the possibilities and potentials of the uh, of the future that awaits us all. Uh, Bushy's my name, in the studio this evening, Adam Grubb and Jed McCartney, hello. How do you do Bushy? I do alright, how are you? I'm pretty good, Sh- still looking fit. Thanks knackers. What's going on? Yeah, fitness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Introductions please, Adam Grubb uh, Return guest I think you have been on before, Patrick Wright But not in the studio How are you, Patrick Jones? Yeah, no. yeah g'day guys Let me um, introduce yeah, you no. properly Yeah, sure But you have been? I have, yes I think, did we have yes. Meg, your good partner in the yeah. studio And you on the phone? Um, way no. the, other way oh, the
2: other
1: way around Oh, the other way around Yeah, that's right, that's right Well, welcome back to Green the Apocalypse, Mr Patrick Jones uh, Patrick is a writer and uh, artist and community gardener and last time he was on the show, he was talking about his book co-authored with his partner, Meg Allman, The Art of Free Travel, which is about their exciting and incredible journey, spending very little money and riding bicycles with a tween, a toddler and a terrier up the east coast of Australia. The they uh, call themselves the family, the artist as family, and they get up to all sorts of things on a permacultural and artistic kind of bent in their hometown of Dalesford in central Victoria. Patrick, we want to talk about all the things you've been up to since you finished your great adventure, but let's let's talk about home life at the moment. What What is happening uh, for you guys, because I know you do some interesting experiments. In fact, are you at this very moment sitting in the darkness? Uh... Actually not. No, <laughs> Busted. No, but you, okay.
0: you, usually, usually I am. Yep. I've um, just uh, escaped family, the, the bustle of family life in candlelight, uh-huh. and run over to one of the little tiny houses. And I've got um, some mushroom uh, papers out here. So if we just ended up talking about mushrooms, I can I can actually read it. But um, usually oh, yes. usually this time, Fair. Usually <laughs> this time of night, we've um, let. A couple of candles we have a couple of low blue light um lamps and that's about all we've got on um so yeah that whole diurnal um uh living with the with the with the, the, the circadian rhythm has become a big story in the last year or so and we picked that up on the bikes really just um being exhausted at the end of the day yeah. finding a camp really camping, setting up a camp somewhere on dusk and um, getting up and moving on before, um, you know, on sun, sunrise and just living like that for 400 days on 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 that big trip, um, really, we, we got fantastic sleep, and we had incredible energy, and it's not just, I guess, because we're riding every day and getting fitter and moving on, um, lots of wild food, lots of fish, um, lots of edible weeds and um, some mushrooms. But, yeah, at the moment, um, it's
1: mushroom season
0: up here. And mm.
1: uh, Tell, us, tell under, us more about just sleeping with the seasons first, though. So yeah. just to be clear, you're, you don't use lights in your house? Uh,
0: yes, very, very few lights. Uh-huh. Um, occasionally, can... yeah, occasionally we will, um, after the sun goes down, we will put on a little lamp that mm-hmm. we've um, got, which are uh, amber, amber colours. So they yep. have very small amounts of blue light in them. Um, and the, the whole kind of reason of that, um, there's, there's quite a lot of studies to suggest, I and mean, this is the science. We, uh, as a species, evolved in the equatorial region, mm-hmm. um, roughly having 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of, um, of dark. Um, and uh, for most of human history, we've lived in that... Uh, so we've developed in, in that pattern. And... Um, until uh, the advent of the electric light bulb, where um, the daylight or artificial daylight has just been occurring, in, uh, um, in, you know, in coming into that 12 hours more and more and more over the last hundred years. And so researchers at the University of Surrey who've been studying um, melatonin production in blind or um, vision-impaired people Mm -hmm. have found, you know, trying to work out why that community has low rates of um, cancer and why, um, yeah, lower rates of cancer and why the highest rates are shift workers. Mm. And so there's a theory, this is, you know, uh, this is sort of under current scrutiny at the moment by a number of different um researchers but there is a theory that we're not getting full melatonin production because of the incursion of artificial blue light into uh into our lives so that period of time three hours before bed if you've got like really low levels of blue light um just a bit of amber light so obviously we had fires we had um so, firelight is mainly amber light; very little blue light. Lunar illumination is not enough to apparently uh, stop melatonin production. So that's what mm-hmm. blue light does; it stops the production of melatonin.
1: You can get like so, apps for your phone and computer that change the tint on it at night time. Yeah. That's my that's yeah. the nearest I've come to that. Yeah. But so, yeah. But we're in the middle of well, we're heading towards uh, solst- winter solstice, mm-hmm. so that's a pretty long night. Yeah. How how do you guys yeah. cope with that?
0: More organisation, really. So, just you start to think about dinner around five, mm-hmm. um, preparing the um, dinner, eating around six, um, bed by seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, We're giving
1: you up? Awesome. It's past your bedtime?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. but so the last the last bit of that story with melatonin is yeah. that melatonin is one of the uh, the, the most powerful antioxidant. Uh, sorry, anti. Um, cancer-fighting hormones that we have in the body. And while we're sleeping, um, the melatonin is soothing up all, all the cancer cells in the body. So that's, that's the general science of it. Now some people dispute that. Some people I think it's a crock. But there's, there's just... It's like sort of where the... For me, it's like where the microbiome was 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Um, in terms of...
2: In terms I mean, of the general of discussion, do you mean?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and now, you know, like it, it feels like it's in its infancy, but I think it will become
2: a bigger story uh in the next decade hey patrick i i posted a thing recently on i mean it's ironic that we're talking about um lo-fi living and stuff but you know we're both facebook buddies but there was a thing i put up for you guys to have a look at recently about sleep with professor matthew walker and uh, a, a lot of what you're saying is echoing what he said and that that idea of um setting your evenings up to be dark um Yeah, is a very important one. I was just going to wondering as well when when you're out on the road and you were sleeping. One of the things he mentioned in that podcast interview was um, that you actually sleep better cold. Um, Yes, and I I wanted to touch on that because I mean, I certainly like to keep our fire uh, sort of gently humming overnight to keep the chill off the house. But I've since that that podcast, not not even sort of two or three weeks ago, I've um, returned to sort of sleeping. Um, in minimal clothing with minimal blankets and I'm actually sleeping better and deeper and waking up and exploding out of bed. Is that something I'm, you could speak I'm, to a bit?
0: Yeah I'm finding the same and usually by this time of the year I'm starting uh, to close my window and not and not wake up with the kookaburras on, on dusk but um, I'm not only sleeping better with the window open, letting the fire go down after the cooking event at Five, six in in the evening. There's just enough um, heat to keep the house warm for an hour or so while we're still up, and then um, and then opening the bedroom window and loving that cold, waking up with that coldness, but also not cancelling out bird sounds. So I think like waking up with bird sounds is another thing that is just so fantastic for anyone who loves camping. is just you know, what that means, um, getting out of your, you know, overly human self and waking up with the call of other animals is just an awesome way to wake up. So, yeah, I, the, the cold, I, I did listen to that um, that link you sent through, and, and I, I was thinking about that cold. It's like we've got a really crudely built um, sauna here that we put in an old um, fireplace fireplace. Uh, from the tip mm. and uh, some some locally milled um cedar rough cut cedar and made little shack and it sweats up we can get up to 90 degrees in there nice chuck some chuck some sauna rocks on the top and um in midwinter when when you're not sweating out your toxins as much um it's it's great for that health-wise but after a sweat coming outside pouring a Bucket of cold water on you, and
2: then heading to bed is just like you don't get a better sleep than that. Mm, It's very counterintuitive. I I sort of thought to myself when I first uh, first heard that that you know that would be like the least pleasant way to shut down for the day is the cold flush. Um, But yeah, it really works.
1: So you started bringing up mushrooms, Patrick. So one of the big themes of your book, The Art of Free Travel, was that up and down the coast, you guys were living as much as possible off what you could hunt and forage yeah it's mushroom season now what's happening in your and i think central victoria where you live is really one of the most biologically diverse places in the world for fungi what's happening yeah. at the moment uh
0: lots of things um yeah it's a really great start of the season um i've been eating for the first time this uh, year wild enokies um i've got a, a foraging buddy who's just awesome um um, Paul Ward or Speedy uh-huh. and uh, he, he's put me onto a few really great things of late um, including eating Amanitos
1: um, fly no. okay let's be careful here because I think these are one of the, the most nose. widely poisoned yeah. uh, you know p- yeah, uh, like sure. cause deaths I, even I think if have done incorrectly
0: jump in. I was just about to jump in with a warning <laughs> yeah. please don't Please don't try this at home. It's a really um, long and processed uh, recipe to to turn this poisonous food into
1: edible food. But so these are the um, red ones with white spots, which the right. um, Vikings would feed to reindeer, then drink the or urine they, yeah. in order to get high. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm not making this up, right? That's, that's, <laughs> right.
0: So, so the myth goes. I, I, I don't. Right. I don't know quite if I believe that. But um, okay. yeah, the, the myth myth goes that. Um, uh, they extracted the toxins out of the, 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 the reindeers extracted the toxins, they drank the urine and went into battle in the psychoactive state and mm-hmm. took, over, took over great
2: countries. And, yeah. That's the, more along the lines of the i They would enter into, that was where you get the phrase berserker. <laughs> that These Viking, these jo- already gigantic people would enter warfare with their mouths yeah. foaming and all sorts of manner. That's good. That's yeah, a good yeah. segue there, Adam. Because I'll
1: play some Viking music later. <laughs> but you're saying you can eat them, and by detoxifying, you're also getting rid of the psychoactives, are you?
0: That's right. Yeah, you are. Yeah, and they're not just look. I'm I'm interested in any food that's feral or weed or abundant and dominant, and I just getting away from this 1080 roundup culture of ours that that's so violent and fascistic in its conservation. Mm. And getting much more into compassionate conservation and um, saying, well, most most species, we, we can be biological controls to this. We don't have to fork out money to coals and woolies. You know, 10% of our diets could easily be, or 5 to 10, 15% of our diets could come from wild uh, ferals and um, and weeds. And it's just it's an abundance out there, uh, particularly in central Victoria. But, you know, I have foraged in Melbourne as well. Mm. Um, so... Uh, fly agarics, you know, again, they're poisonous. If you just chuck them in the pan with some butter, you're going to be sick. Um, so don't do that. But there is there is a process in in, in, in which to convert that into food. Um, One so, that doesn't involve reindeer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been eating um, indigenous rooting shanks this year, of course the sloopy Jacks and Saffron Milk Caps, um, wood bluets and uh, field bluets, um very bitter Australian honey fungus, which is a really dominant um, forest blight around here because of poor forest management.
1: Oh, I didn't know you could eat that.
0: Yeah, it's really bitter. Yeah. Um, and so I boil the water, change the water, I boil them in water, change the water but, but two or three times and then cook them up. You still get, I mean, I, I, we don't have enough bitterness in our diets, as you'd know, Grubby. Um, you know, but the more bitter foods we actually get into our diets, the less cravings for sugar and, and the same the same happens in reverse. The more sugary our diet, the less desirable we find bitter foods. So if you've got cravings for sugar and you want to allay those, um, go and start munching on dandelion leaves um, on a regular basis and build an appetite for, um, for bitterness. And that will, like what Bushy was talking about with um, beer and running, you know, once you attend to a sort of a craving or a desire, um, something else happened that says yes to
1: other things. and So I love bitter foods. You are listening to a triple R podcast, podcast, etc. <laughs> and we have on the phone Patrick Jones, who is, well, one of the factions. Let's say <laughs> one of the one of the, one of the co collaborators within Artist's family, and we've been talking about the kind of um, yeah, well, interesting parts of your lifestyle, which seem partly inspired by your fantastical journey up the east coast on bicycles, which included sleeping with the sun, or when it's gone, <laughs> it'd be weird to do <laughs> it the wrong sleeping
2: but, with its absence.
1: Yeah, not the vampire method, the opposite. And uh, continuing on with things like. Um, Getting a lot of food from wild feral forage stuff you're doing a few other projects do do you feel like um I, well actually one thing that I thought was interesting and it could be a segue into other discussions is that you've had a bit of a uh, you you've inv- i saw on Facebook a lot of shares for something called peasant insurrection chess what's that
0: <laughs> yeah so um a, about a month ago woody our five year old said uh, asked me to teach him uh, chess to play chess, and I sort of had a few days to think about it we couldn't do it straight away so um, I was just thinking i don't want to tell him that story i don't want to i don't want him growing up." with that story of those little pawns at the front and uh and the royalty all sort of making the shots and Mm -hmm. and it all being about the aristocrats uh i mean obviously in feudal times but today you can you know it's uh, i guess um the the corporate bosses um or or capitalists um i i want to i want to tell a new narrative so i being a chess player i started putting um I started uh, setting the, the board up in, just by myself and I uh, came up with what I call Peasant Insurrection Chess. And I shared it. I, I was in Melbourne a few weeks ago. Um, just, I was walking to the State Library to do some work there just as the uh, librarian came out with all the, the big chess pieces that sit out the front of the library and uh, I helped her unload it. <laughs> and I thought, I've got to set this up. So I set it up as a game of Peasant Insurrection is set up and uh took a photo and then um we did a post on artists family facebook uh and instagram um explaining the rules and it's just gone completely nuts and people are uh, discussing um moves that they made how to like there's a, there's a there's a the so-called pawns i call peasants have the same moves and it's pe- the pe- black and white peasants at either end of the board are um uh The attempt is well. One one player plays for the peasants, one for the aristocrats, Uh and um, it's a very it's hard. You have to be a great chess player, I think, to win on the peasant side, but it's not impossible. Yeah, and so um, yeah, so that's a funny little thing. And so Woody and I now play that at home. um, That's okay. I heard a great Italian saying the other day, Patrick. For Woody is um, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. Yeah right, nice. Yeah, yeah, I like
2: that. They sleep together. Yeah, they do indeed. Yeah, that's a great picture. I just, I just noticed though, actually, the picture we've got here of your game of insurrection chess set up in the city. There's three police officers in the background. Is that anything to do with your?
1: <laughs> and a row of children in front
2: of them. Yeah, and a row of children <laughs> well, blocking the cops. That's, huh. that's the,
1: that's the other
0: beautiful moment of that image. So. Just as I was setting up, these school kids came along with their teachers and said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm setting up the peasant insurrection chess. And, and the kids go, can we play? And, uh, <laughs> but and,
1: instead of and playing the game, they just start, started to take over the state immediately. <laughs> exactly.
0: Wow. And the, the police presence was there. And it was just such a nice coincidence of timing because I'm setting this up, peasant insurrection chess, just as the massive um, union march is coming down past the library. And so there was a police presence there because of that. So I, I, uh, I didn't know the march was on at the time, but um, I was definitely in, um, in uh, solidarity with just doing a, a completely uh, different kind of activity.
1: So you have an interesting relationship with this word peasant. You, you describe your activities and those of your family as that of a neo-peasant what 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 what's that mean to you? Because it, you know, I can see it could get the hackles up. Like are you celebrating, um, area era an, an, an era where you know it was pretty hard to be upwardly mobile, and that you uh, were bound to this land-based existence and and mm-hmm. to the whims of those aristocrats above you.
0: Sure, yeah. Look, there's lots of um, there's lots of reductionist history around peasants, um, and I guess over the last. Several years I've been reading about my own um, ancestral peasantry and there's, of course, peasants still uh, in many cultures still living and operating as peasants. So, you know, I am I am definitely, in neo-peasant, I'm basically acknowledging um, a middle-class privilege to call myself that. So the neo is just basically saying my grandparents were working Australians um, a few, about three or four generations before them they were uh, land-based peasant cultures um my parents were became middle class because of my the, the, you know the sweat and availability of crude oil but the sweat of my grandparents and then you know my parents became middle class and then a second second middle class generation in australia so right, but i'm i'm looking environmentally and culturally at this i'm saying who are my ancestors i live on Jaja wrong land Judge a wrong economy and culture is the only example of ecological economy that we have on this land. I can't appropriate that. I can honour it and respect it and listen uh, to the elders um, who speak that, but it's not my culture to tell. But what I do have is a historical link, a very um, one that was still living in my grandmother when she used to tell us kids to let a healthy dog lick our wounds. This is Terrain theory, really. Um, uh, from you know, this is this is uh, peasant health. This is like indi- my my indigenous ancestry comes through that last little remnant of um, uh, dog kin um, collaborations with humans. Um, I'm getting <laughs> getting a bit lost here, but look, carbon, the only carbon positive relati- or, or uh, relos I have are back in feudal England. Um, the enclosures in England started in about the 12th century. Um, they work their way up, and by the 18th century, when the, um, the likes of Adam Smith start kicking in and cap- the early capitalists start to take the power over from the old lords and the feudal system, um, the Enclosure Act comes in at, in 1773, and... Um, Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations is published in 1776 and Australia gets a whole bunch of dumped um, uh, convicts who were um, often incarcerated for things like the game laws that the early um, uh, the classical political economists uh, uh, sort of advocated for and made sure that people in the land in country who had access to being able to grow their own food or being community-sufficient or self-sufficient in some way um, could not um, enact an autonomous economy. So I'm not talking about the usual um, reference to peasants, which are just like dumb, stupid people from the country that... Uh, I think George Monbiot says the the oddest insult in the English language is when you call someone a peasant Mm. because you're basically looking at people who um, can be self-provisioning and community provisioning um, and who, you know, have an enormous amount of skills and work with um, ecologies in order to provide that. They don't... um, Yeah, so I guess it's a really... um, there's ancestry for me, there's, there's story, there's carbon-positive um, drawings on, mostly non-monetary, um, there's, a, mm-hmm. there's a closeness to the commons or non-privatised lands, uh, there's diurnal intelligence, and the origins, of course, of food. So um, food and energy resources being, you know, the driving, um, the way in which we do food and energy resources are the, is, is the you know, it's a climate change story really. Um, uh, industrial food and energy systems are basically equate to climate change. So,
1: yeah. I, I, so, like I mean, I definitely feel sy- sympathy towards the idea that um, people that had to live off the land, especially if it was old cultures and you're talking village lifestyles, that they could have had some pretty happy existence and managed managed to do that with, as you put it, a carbon positive footprint. So, Maybe they captured more carbon in the soil than than they extracted from it, and from the forests yep. that they burnt, they may have grown, you know, kept that. So, for, from a if if you take you know a kind of envirom- environmentalist moralist perspective, um, then they, they live a more sustainable life than ours, and they're not hurting the ecology and future generations. But there is, I also feel a lot of resistance that maybe throwing out. Um, Everything thats comes <laughs> i don 't know if i 'm quite ready to go back uh, to that no, lifestyle i don 't know if many people would be or, or could with yeah. current population
0: i guess I guess for us it's we're, we're trying to conceive of um, a really low carbon um, life form i mean that 's our whole sort of practice up here like how how do we how do we uh, live with extremely low levels of carbon that is not going to cost the earth in the way it is? But, I mean, the, the cultural stuff, Joan Thirsk is an agricultural historian, and in 1978 she uh, wrote an incredible book on peasants um, pre uh, classical political economy and while the enclosures did start in the 12th century there were still people that were unable to um augment their own culture they were they were self-determining in many respects and she writes that in the 16th and early 17th century about one third of the working days including Sundays were spent in leisure and um nice. celebrating yeah I mean like that's just unheard of so yeah. you know this is when you go into the history um, I mean the usual thing is um, is that this is misery this is, this is um, misogynistic miserable culture well actually that happened once peasants were dispossessed mm. just like anyone is dispossessed just, just like any culture is dispossessed it, people become traumatic traumatized sorry, tra- traumatized and, um, and so things become ugly in cultures whether they be human or non-human when, when, um, when there's great um, sort of displacement. Mm. So, um, you know, the the, the story um, pre that trauma uh, is the story that I'm interested in, because, mainly because I, I don't really believe in endless amounts of energy. I no. don't believe that that you know. So if, if we're not going to, so this is pragmatic. I don't see it as moral at all what I'm talking about I'm I'm just seeing it as pragmatic adaptation like how do we how do we configure how do we live well how do we live with a third third of the year in um leisure you, you know in in cultural making leisure um times like you know people are time poor people, you know just, just like chasing the man um just <laughs> chasing the man you just like Chasing the tails to pay the man uh, mm-hmm. is like a big, big story, and I, I, knew, I know that story. I, I hate, I hated my life when I was that. So becoming um, increasingly non-monetary, um, obviously having access to a quarter acre in the in the outer suburbs of Dalesford has it has enabled a very different type of economy to be made and having that access is extremely privileged
1: so, so you're obviously getting more sleep are you actually finding more time to for, for that relaxation and is that directly because you're providing for some of your own needs like doing more repair work doing more community gardening and gardening yeah. for food and yeah. stuff is is, is is it actually working out on balance because a lot of those things i know they they do take time as well
0: yeah, well, I think it's it's been ten years, and we started a hundred percent dependent on the monetary economy, and we we estimate we're now thirty percent um, um,
1: dependent on it. So it's so you mean uh, like you work for thirty percent and pay for it with money for your clothes, food, shelter, etc., and the other seventy percent you're providing yeah. through informal economies, and foraging, That's and right. all the rest.
0: Yeah, Yeah. so 30% is monetary. Yeah. So um, that's pretty much mortgage, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so, so and that, with that, so uh, we've got this, we have this principle that we only spend money on stuff that's going to enable us to become more moneyless. And so obviously having access to land, but also doing community gardening and con- guerrilla managed forest. Work, knowing 30 different um, wild edible mushrooms, 50 different um, edible weeds, that all contributes to being, you know, each each summer better and better food, um, veggie growers.
1: The gift economy. I just felt the competitive things. side of me count how many I know. <laughs> <laughs> I I might you might be outdoing me.
0: I'll <laughs> send you my list. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Um, I think, you know, the other thing that, that I really don't like, um, like, like any a, a kind of permaculture or even, even to, to talk about peasants in terms of self-sufficiency, I hate that term. It's really right-wing. It's always community sufficiency that makes people resilient. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR.
2: We have got Patrick Jones on the phone from up in central Victoria. We've been chatting about all sorts of uh, aspects of his life, including reinventing Chess to be um, a good outcome for the peasants and a lot of the fungi ID. Well, it sounds
1: like you set them up to fail if they lose (laughs) most
2: times. (laughs) Well, I don't think so. We had a chat at the top of the show about um, sleeping with the seasons and sleeping, you know, well, not with the sun, but against the sun. And we were just chatting beforehand um, about some of the ideas behind what Patrick and Meg and the crew have uh, dubbed neo-peasantry. There was this old poem, though, Patrick. You touched on the Enclosures Act before we went to that track, and there's this old poem that i I remember, and it vaguely goes along the lines of um, the law locks up the man or woman that takes the goose from off the common but lets the greater villain loose that takes the common from the goose. And that was a... I can't remember where I read that, but it, was, it touched on the Enclosures Act. Now, I do not know where you read it. Did you just recite that? Yeah, yeah, it's just huh. recited it. it. Um, but that... That speaks to the idea of uh, the commons and the uses of public land. And I just wanted to maybe chat to you guys a bit about your experiences of moving sort of out beyond um, your little quarter-acre patch and and shared places with friends and out into the public lands and and open lands around the area and and how that goes and some of the responses you get from other people and and even to touch on how others' interactions with that land might affect you. I know a year or two back Adam was interviewed when uh, he was kicking back against glyphosate being sprayed on his lunch
1: in one of the local Brunswick no, parks. No, was glyphosate they were doing broadleaf broad leaf herbicide broadleaf application herbicide. off the back of a tractor across the whole park which yeah That's technically you, you sp- it says on the back of the pack no one's supposed to go on the park for 3 days but That's right. they didn't yeah. put up signs. I thought it wasn't Probably the, the Brunswick East mums would, would like to know about that. <laughs> oh, but there was, so. incidentally, yeah, Killing My Dandelion, which I wasn't too happy about. Well,
2: that's right, and, and it yeah, spoke yeah. volumes about um, how various different people, stakeholders, interests interact with piece of land. And so I guess, Patrick, how, how was your experience um, moving out into the public sphere and, and, and foraging and harvesting bits and pieces of mm. what may fall? How does that go? Yeah, well, as, as Adam, you'd know, um,
0: teaching foraging is, is, is often... Not just about plants and mushrooms, but actually um, teaching people where how to identify where um herbicide drifts have, have, would most likely occur in a, in a public space and, uh, you know, look, looking for where heavy metals might sit in an in environment and mm. things like that. So it's it's as, as much to do with um, food as it is with the, uh, the environmental pollutants.
1: But, I'm just thinking you know, how well we're selling the, your, the lifestyle so far. So we've got <laughs> throw cold water over yourself in the middle of the night before going to bed. Um, yep. Eat while food from possibly lead-contaminated soils. What else we... (laughs) OK. Let's let's
0: move on to the next
1: thing. Um, Maybe you need to touch on the raw milk and the raw sex. Start a chess game that you probably won't win. (laughs) To stack it against yourself.
0: Yeah, see, I've never been good at... I never make
2: it in advertising. Yeah, after after we talk about the commons, you might have to talk about mead. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, So... Yeah, we, we started uh, getting really serious about uh, the little forest. So where the, the suburbia sort of ends in South West Dalesford, and then we walk down this sort of little green place, uh, green path past a, a neighbour's orchard, and then we're in um, like this sort of novelty remnant forest, um, not quite uh, the Wombat State Forest, but uh, sort of like a, a, ro- a reserve that, um, feeds down to the back of Lake Dalesford, and there's um, about every four or five years, the CFA and other land managers would just set fire to it because it's full of non-correct species. And um,
1: <laughs> what do you mean massive, by that?
0: Uh, basically, non-indigenous species. Yeah. Um, so, and then that what would happen in that uh, is uh, a massive weed event would would then um, bracken and uh, sorry uh, uh, gorse and Scotch broom and blackberries would just, uh, you know, start start their succession again. So
1: it, it is a sad irony, and I talk about it on the edible weed walks I do. Uh, that herbicide spray and fire does the same thing, re- takes things back to bare earth and full yep. sun, and yep. that are the conditions that the plants we call weeds are adapted to for the most part. It's the reason why they follow us all around the world because we're very good at doing those exactly. things.
0: Exactly, exactly. As soon as you disturb soil, you've got weeds. Yeah. Um, it's as simple <laughs> as that. So this this forest was uh, av- absolutely ravaged by gold lust in the, in the 1850s, um, so gold digging town. Um, and then blackberries have basically been stabilising um, steep gully banks ever since um you know because it was completely denuded, so what we've been doing is a whole range of things um recognizing that we need to stop the burning regimes we've we've stopped the herbicide regimes um we this is this forest is about ten acres and we've been doing community i guess gorilla
1: um forest management of it and so was it traditionally burnt
0: uh no, no. okay. Not, no, not... Whereas not, a lot of um, as,
1: uh, the Australian continent was, but not this yeah, type um, of forest. So,
0: no, and look, uh, indigenous burning, as far as I'm aware, happens in mosaic... Um, um, uh, small mosaic pattern burning um, up in um, the north of the country. Down here, the burning, as far as I'm aware, were like after the the grain um, and the Myrnyong, um so in in the perennial grasslands where Charong agrarianism was taking place, um just very uh timely um, well placed um small burns but mm-hmm. this is um damp uh, wet forest it would have been tree ferns originally there would have been um, yeah very fire retarding um, mm-hmm. forests so so what we 're trying to do is get it back to um uh, well, basically, stop the, the burning regimes, and uh, so what we do is chop and drop. So, using t- permaculture techniques, I learned from David Holmgren years ago that he
1: permaculture was, co-originator and future guest of the show yeah. in two weeks, I think.
0: Ah, fantastic! Yep, talking all things retro,esberby no doubt. Yes. Um, yeah. So he was uh, he and, and our fellow community participants were using ladders like uh, light. Um, uh, aluminium ladders to lay down across the Blackberries, And so we started using boards and getting teenagers involved and calling it blackberry surfing. And so we inlanders are, at, you know, there's not much surf up here. So going down the <laughs> gullies with teenagers... Getting dumped uh, sounds pretty yeah, full on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> getting dumped.
1: So you're talking about you're, sort of you're on top of a bit Because they can grow like several metres deep, The um, the blackberry yeah. canes, can't they? So it's just living layer on top and then it's all dead underneath, which becomes a well, fire well, hazard...
0: Exactly. The canes are extremely fire-hazardous. After three years of doing this, of laying them down once a year, so you can do a tennis court. uh, with Two teenagers with a couple of boards um, can do a tennis court size in about 20 minutes, half an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's there's literally two footy grounds worth uh, we've done over the last three years. And in the third crushing, um, this latest crushing, they're not... So it's, it's using blackberries as a living mulch. They're extremely good. Like the, the wood is lignin-rich, um, so it's great for soil building. You get the the, the, the the canes down on the ground and they start rotting over, over winter, mm. turn into soil, then we start planting in
1: to that. To it sounds like out. a so, classic example of the permaculture adage slash cliche, the problem is the solution. Yep. Where you see, Great. yeah, the the blackberries is this like uh, horrible invasive species. It's also f- fire um, causing, and um, yeah, I've seen this in action and what you've been up to there, and what David has been, yeah. David and Sue have been doing there. And uh, yeah. but what do you want? Can you explain how? Because just squashing blackberries down to the ground doesn't seem like that's going to kill them. What what is the stage of? It,
0: uh, when, yeah, it, getting the intention is to take. The, the, the first intention is to take the fire proneness out of them, which is what we've done so we um and then um,
1: so just squashing um, them does that because it's not like a big it, pile of tinder it, um, with air through it it
0: it it, it, it turns the, the
1: squa- squashing
0: uh, the, the crushing turns them from fire prone into fire retarding so they yeah. become this green living um, forest floor mulch um, and basically the they're only dominant there because that keep getting, um, uh, uh, the soil keeps getting disturbed every four or five years through the burning, um, and they're sunny. So Mm -hmm. the next stage is to plant into them. So this is not the mentality of, let's get rid of every skerrick of blackberry. Blackberry, There's so many indigenous um, animals that uh, have been incorporating blackberry um, into their diet for probably 150 years or more now mm. so um,
1: yeah Tim Lowe's the new that, nature I think yeah. looks into that and some other shrubby species prickly species yeah. that end up like being the last remaining habitats of some endangered yeah, exactly. native animals
0: yeah I've got nativist friends or, or naturalist friends I should say who are um, who are telling me that a certain type of gorse is being um, earmarked not, not for removal in a certain area because of a very endangered small um, thornbill or finch or mm-hmm. some small bird is, you know, it's its dominant habitat. That's the other thing that led us to, with observation um, in this forest is that the hawthorns that are there that have no ecological status are now the dominant um, habitat tree to ringtail possums
1: to build their drays in. Okay. So, uh, I'm not sure if every, all of our urban listeners would know Hawthorne. It's like a, it's like a,
0: it's a, a hedgerow plant. Yeah, from, hedgerow.
1: from Europe. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, from all over actually. Um, uh, okay. Europe, um, North Africa, uh, yeah. Asia, um, extremely great medicinal berries, um, heart medicine in China. Mm. Um, our ancestors from, my ancestors from um, England used um, them way before um, agrarian settlements. Um, as uh, an ethnobotanist, um this is a theory uh, that they were made as fruit leathers because they've got high amounts of vitamin C. Oh
1: um, yeah, you can eat the berries.
0: That's right, yeah. yeah. But if you turn, turn them into fruit leather, they're really desirable and you can turn them into really... Uh, they've got high levels of pectin. So, um, uh, yeah, so that for making uh, fruit jerky, to, which is light, and uh, you can chew on through the winter and um, you've got this sort of uh, availability of, of good uh, nutrition to get you through the winter. So um, they're, for me, the old ancestral medicine tr- trees, um, living... Um, as as a main habitat um, for uh, old timer ringtail species, uh, yeah. uh, ringtail possums, and so there's a there's a pragmatic mutualism in in the ad- adaptation there. So the the red uh, squirrel would have been the traditional mammal that lived in there or is in England. Mm. and um, and now it's a ringtail possum, and so the possum gives nutrients to the tree. The
1: tree's thorns protect the possum from powerful owls. Hey, Patrick, so, we see, I think we're keeping you up a bit past your bedtime, aren't we? Um, we went down some pathways there that I didn't really expect to go, but I think that's really fascinating that, I, uh, you know, the idea of mixed ecologies and novel ecosystems and then, yeah, recognising that there are native animal, non, uh, non-indigenous plant synergies and where you do want to control them, see if there is a use for them in, uh, in terms of eating them like in the hawthorn or using them as tree guards and living mulches in the blackberries. So, mm. I don't know, it's a fascinating topic. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne.
0: Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.